Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, welcome to the Definitive Wrap, and my name is Bela Seabrow. We thank Vin News for hosting our show. In this day and age, being politically correct is the political thing to do. It doesn't even matter if one believes in what they are saying. As long as they are politically correct, that's all that matters. And the media is oftentimes no exception. The Definitive Wrap will unapologetically say what needs to be said and our guests will say what needs to be said, whether it is politically correct or not. And that is one of the things that we stand for. Political correctness is a poor substitute for factual correctness. Similarly, good intentions are no guarantee of good policy. In the same way, as the old proverb goes, the road to hell is sometimes paved with good intentions. Acting in good faith is not always altruistic. With us today is Dr. Martin Sherman. He is the founder and CEO of the Israel Institute for Strategic Studies. Dr. Sherman holds degrees in physics and geology, business administration, and a PhD in political science. His widely read column, Into the Fray, appears in a number of well-known sites such as Newsmax, JNS, Israel National News, Jewish Press, Algeminer, Maida, to name a few. Dr. Sherman also has numerous publications in leading Hebrew sites in Israel, such as Israel Hayom, Maida, Ynet, and NFC. He served for seven years in operational capacities in the Israeli intelligence community. From 1990 to 91, he held the post of ministerial advisor to the Israeli government and has testified as an expert before the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress in a hearing on economic and security trends in the Middle East. He was a research fellow at the International Policy Institute for Counterterrorism, and he acted as the academic coordinator of the internationally renowned Herzliya Conference in 2001 and 2002. He was also the academic director of the Jerusalem Summit. Dr. Sherman has 15 years experience as a director on the boards of several Israeli commercial companies. His academic publications include two books, the Politics of War in the Middle East and Despots, Democrats and the Determinants of International Conflict, pub published by Macmillan, with a foreword by Shabtai Shavit, former director of Mossad, as well as several articles and journals such as the Middle East Quarterly, the Journal of Strategic Studies, the Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, the Jour Journal of Theoretical uh, Politics, Nations and Nationalism, and Nationalism and Ethnic Politics. Dr. Sherman has also published numerous chapters and edited volumes and policy papers on a range of strategic and foreign policy issues. Likewise, he has appeared frequently on TV and radio, both on Israeli and international networks, and he writes extensively on security, political, and economic issues in the Israeli national press in English and Hebrew. Dr. Sherman, wow, what an impressive bio. You know, typically I will shorten the bio, but it would not have done you justice. Welcome to the Definitive Wrap. Thank you very much for the invitation. 
You recently wrote an article, Israeli law enforcement, something to worry about. Can you tell us about that article and what prompted you to write it? Well, you know, over the last good few years, there have been some very disturbing phenomena in the way the Israeli law enforcement establishment uh, operates. That includes the police, the state prosecution, and the judiciary. Because you find that sometimes existing law is being ignored, sometimes uh, law is being invented, and sometimes uh, evidence and uh, testimonies are being completely discarded. And in the article, I give three major examples. Uh, the first example is the uh, almost uh, inconceivable behavior of the judiciary to allow uh, anti-Zionist, dominantly Arab parties to run in the parliamentary or the Knesset elections. Now, now I say, why I say this is so surprising is because there is a law and not only an ordinary law, what in Israel is called a basic law, which is supposed to be you know, a, a superior type of law and which needs a, uh, a, a majority vote in, in the parliament to, to legislate and to annul. So it's not just like an ordinary law where, where, where a sitting majority can pass it. Here you have to have a numerical example, 61 votes out of 120 seats to, to pass a law. And these are supposed to be the building blocks of an Israeli constitution, because Israel doesn't have a formal constitution. It has a collection of these basic laws which deal with, with seminal issues in, in, in the life of the country, whether it's the parliament, the government, uh, army service, etc., etc. Um, so uh, in the basic law dealing with the Knesset, dealing with the parliament, it says explicitly that uh, reasons for... Uh, annulling or barring a party or a, a candidate to run for uh, election is either they, uh, if they support uh, an enemy country or a terrorist organization in times of war, whether uh, they uh, promote racism or whether they deny the status of Israel as the nation state, as the democratic nation state of the Jewish people. And the dominant Arab parties today, the one is the Islamic Baram Party, the United Arab List, and the Joint List, which is basically an amalgam of parties from ultra-Arab nationalism to communists, um, basically, or in basic, explicitly deny, unabashedly, undisguisedly, the opposition to Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, which is a clear, blatant contradiction of the letter of the law, and despite this, the, the, the High Court has repeatedly annulled Knesset decisions to bar their, uh, their participation and allow them to participate. Uh, moreover, some uh, Arab uh, candidates have identified explicitly with uh, uh, Israel's enemies, whether it's Syria, whether it's uh, some of the, the, the terrorist organizations, so th this is basically the first, uh, not only that, <laughs> one, of the, one of the parties actually uh, initiated legislation, which uh, obviously didn't get through, but initiated legislation to define Israel as a non-Jewish state of all its citizens. So there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that these parties violate the, the letter of the, of the law. And, uh, you know, it's, it's almost 
as I said, it's, uh, the, the, the courts here are ignoring the existing law. Uh, the, the next example is uh, the, 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 the prosecution and the, the conviction of a, a young Israeli ultra-religious uh, man who was uh, convicted for uh, the death of three, uh, three members of an Arab family in the village of Duma in 2015, where the, where the house was uh, set, uh, set on fire. And uh, the family of four, if I remember correctly, the three, th three eventually died of their the, the wounds, and one was a young child was uh, severely, uh, severely burned. Now, you, you must understand that in Duma, this is a village where there's an ongoing feud between clans. And I think well over half a dozen houses have been set ablaze they, within the framework of this, uh, of this uh, feuding. Um, the only one that was attributed to Jews was this particular one where the family was burned to death. And the only indication there was that it was, was not committed by other Arabs was graffiti in Hebrew on, 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 the, on, the, uh, on, on the wall of the house. Now, uh, for six, it took six months to apprehend someone. Eventually they apprehended this, uh, this, this Jewish youth. Uh, he was, uh, uh, for 20 days he denied any involvement. And then he was submitted to uh, what's called enhanced interrogation, which is basically physical pain. Um, and he, he eventually confessed. But the strange thing here is his confession is completely at odds with eyewitness accounts on the day of the of the of the, of the arson. Uh, eyewitnesses said they they saw at least two assailants who fled the scene in a car. In his confession, he claims that he walked for five kilometers, which is about three miles, five kilometers alone through hostile territory penetrated the village, didn't burn the, the first house on the outskirts of the village, uh, looked for a house in the center of the village, set one house alight, which turned out to be empty, then set another house on, 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 uh, on fire uh, and spray-painted Hebrew graffiti, uh, and then somehow vanished phantom-like on foot. Now, you, you know, you, this is really a, an improbable account. Not only is it, is it um, uh, at odds, with the, the eyewitness accounts uh, that uh, there, were, there were two assailants in the car when he admitted that he, that he was alone and, and walked on, on foot. But uh, handwriting experts say that the graffiti was written by two different people. It couldn't be the same person who wrote the two, the two pieces of graffiti. So you have a very disturbing situation here where someone has been prosecuted after being uh, uh, submitted to very severe interrogation, you know, basically torture, uh, and uh, the only the, the, the only instance where Israeli law allows the use of, of enhanced interrogation is if it's a ticking bomb, if there's tangible suspicion that this person being interrogated knows something about an imminent attack, which is clearly not the case in in, in this instance because he was acquitted of being a member of any organization. So if obviously he wasn't a member of an organization, he couldn't have known of any other brewing plot to, to attack. So here you have a, 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 very, a, a very disturbing case where someone is being, being uh, uh, convicted despite the fact that it's clearly in contradiction, of, uh, in, in contradiction to the facts that are being, that are being presented.
Um, and uh, of course, the, the third and probably most newsworthy case is uh, the Netanyahu case, uh, because uh, not only uh, not only is um, uh, the, the the doubts about uh, Netanyahu um, about the the the, uh, the evidence and and the way it was connected, but there the skepticism about the legality of opening the the uh, the, the investigation itself. Uh, according to the basic law of government, you can only open up a criminal investigation against a sitting prime minister if you have permission from the attorney general. Now, it's true that it doesn't say that the, the, the permission has to be written, but you would expect that in a case which is so high, so unprecedented and so, so high a profile and against the prime minister who was not only the longest serving prime minister in the history of the country, but also by far the most popular politician, that you would want to cross your eyes and dot your T's when you, when you start this investigation. And so there would have to be some, some orderly record of why the investigation was, was uh, launched. And uh, initially, when the, when the uh, defense team asked to see the proof that this permission uh, uh, was given, there was a lot of hesitation, etc., etc., and eventually they said it was given orally, and it, it, it's, it's, uh, it features in the, the, the internal office protocols, which, you know, is not entirely unreasonable, but it seems to be a bit implausible because, because as I said before, in such a sensitive case, you would expect everything to have their, have their, their uh, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Now, uh, but, but apart from that, um, there, there are disturbing cases of witnesses being uh, subjected to very harsh interrogation measures, being sleeping on, on flea-ridden mattresses and then being denied the medical attention and the threats uh, to uh, uh, upend their family life by, by exposing extramarital affairs. Um, and, uh, you know, th these, were, these were the tactics that that brought about witnesses to become state witnesses. Now, the, the strange thing is that uh, when, they, when they came to, at least some of the state witnesses up to now, when they, when they came to the witness stand, they acted more like uh, witnesses for the defense than witnesses for the prosecution. In fact, the, the star state witnesses uh, told the, the, the judges uh, explicitly that Netanyahu had no criminal intent in his actions. He, he, he basically didn't know what he was doing was criminal. And there's good reason for him not knowing because, <clears throat> because the state prosecutor uh, admitted in, in, an, in a, a, a newspaper interview that, um, oh, excuse me, that uh, uh, his prosecution was a, a, a legal precedent that had never been done. That no one had ever been prosecuted uh, on this charge before. And the charge was basically that he was given favorable coverage by a media mogul in order to get some regulatory uh, uh, concessions. Right there, they, were, they were very valuable for the media mogul, but, but you know, without even going to the argument if it was any, there was any real uh, favorable co coverage, because Netanyahu regularly was savaged by, by the Israeli media um, for some reason. And uh, I, I think there's a good case for him to try and get the media uh, to present a more balanced uh, uh, coverage. 
uh, but this uh, uh, this particular charge had never been brought before, and uh, you know, I think it was Alan Dershowitz who said this is a very dangerous move. Basically, what you're doing is criminalizing the, the political process because the essence of politics is give and take, and you know. Uh, so if if every if every politician who gets favorable coverage is going to be taken to the interrogation room to explain what he did and what he didn't do in order to get the the the, uh, uh, the coverage, basically you're paralyzing the political the, the, the political process. Uh, and as I say, there's there's an explicit admission to the media uh, that this this uh, this is a novel and a creative and invented uh, infraction. Uh, because if you, you know, the, the underlying reason is that no one could basically overcome or, or beat Netanyahu on the polls, so they tried to use or abuse the law in order to achieve what they couldn't do through the ballot box. And, and basically, since since uh, my uh, article was published, there's been a new revelation that the prosecution basically concealed a letter from the deputy state uh, attorney that uh, who, who examined the process and found it to be completely uh, in line with uh, the, the, the the legal requirements and so you know there, there, there are so many uh, lacunae here that you would expect the judiciary to to stop the to, to stop the trial on the basis of abusive process because you know if you want to prosecute a prime minister and not just any prime minister, the most popular prime minister that's ever been in Israel, the longest serving prime minister that's been in Israel, you would expect there to be something really blatant, you know, to, to, to remove him from power. But here, what you have to do is you have to invent infractions and put all sorts of uh, strange interpretations on, on, on actions in order to bring a charge against it. And I think this is a very, uh, a very unfortunate situation. And... And as I write in the, in, in the article, uh, the legal system basically is the bulwark between civilized society and the jungle. And the only, the, the only authority that the, the legal system has is the, the credibility it, uh, it, it has in the eyes of the public. And, and if you look at uh, ongoing, um, ongoing polls, you'll feel that there's a very steep erosion of public uh, public trust in the, the the legal system in general and in the judiciary in particular mm -hmm. and in the high court in particular, which is you know, an extremely disturbing uh, situation because if you can't believe in your legal system, you know what can you do? You're going to be uh, right. you know, some sort of South uh, North North Korean dictatorship, it's, and, and it's extremely disturbing. And uh, I think the public are slowly waking up to it. Dr. Sherman. What is the public's trust in the police and justice system right now? Well, it's very low. It's, it, unfortunately, it's, it's very low. And there was a book written by uh, a Canadian professor, Ron Herschel, which was published by Harvard University Press, uh, must, must be about 15 years ago, where he then uh, basically identified this uh, erosion of public trust. And he says that the, the, the courts, the Supreme Court in particular, is being viewed less and less as an impartial arbiter of disputes and more and more and more as a group of people who are promoting their own political, uh, their, their own political uh, views and doctrine. So uh, 
as I say, yeah, 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 this is this is this is a deeply disturbing uh, development, an ongoing development for anyone who's uh, uh, worried about democracy in Israel. Right. Dr. Sherman, as the academic director of Jerusalem Summit, you have been instrumental in bringing high-level dignitaries from a variety of countries to Israel. Can you share some of those names with us, and how has it benefited Israel in terms of public diplomacy and pro-Israel advocacy? Well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we brought so many people. I mean, the, 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 the perhaps the most important uh, person that we brought was. Uh, Baroness Caroline Cox from uh, the House of Lords, uh, and she we, we brought over twice uh, and she, to Tel Aviv University, where she is, and she's an excellent speaker, uh, a very fascinating person. I mean, uh, I, she's she's over eighty, but in her late seventies, she used to travel to to Central Africa and cross borders illegally and uh, liberate slaves, uh, and she 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 she's very very courageous and. Uh, Impressive woman. So I, I, I would, I, and, and she's also been a very strong supporter uh, of Israel. We've brought over other organisations. I've been uh, um, connected with. We brought over senators. Uh, when I was working with one of the organisations that you mentioned earlier, the Jerusalem Summit, uh, we brought over a, a, an array of very high-level people from from India, from uh, China, from uh, uh, across Europe. Uh, and 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 uh, you know I think people when people come to Israel and see it firsthand, they get a completely different uh, impression of the country than they get from uh, the media reports. So I think that's that's, that's important. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sherman, what do you think of President Biden's approach to the Israel-Palestinian conflict? Uh, I've got a very poor opinion of it. I think anyone who promotes the two-state solution uh, is uh, completely off base. I think Trump's, I mean, you know, I, I had some disagreements with the Trump approach as well, but far less than with Biden. I think Biden has basically rolled back all the achievements that, that uh, Trump, uh, or nearly all the achievements, he hasn't managed yet to, to undo uh, Israeli sovereignty on the, uh, uh, on the Golan and uh, move the embassy back uh, from Jerusalem. But, uh, you know, I, I, I always find it very strange why people who profess to having a left-wing, liberal, progressive uh, uh, perspective on politics would ever support a Palestinian state. Because I, I don't think anyone, even the most fervent two-stater, believes that a Palestinian state would be anything but a homophobic, misogynistic, Muslim-majority tyranny. Now, why anyone who professes to be a liberal progressive would want to promote something like that is beyond me. And if you want proof that that's what it will be, just look at Gaza. Gaza is a microcosm of what will happen if Israel pulls, uh, pulls out of those, those, those areas and allows uh, a self-governing Arab uh, entity to, to function. Gaza, you have exactly what I said, a homophobic, misogynistic, Muslim-majority tyranny. And, and, and there's absolutely no reason to think that wouldn't replicate itself if Israel were to pull out and establish the state, uh, you know, five to ten kilometers from the outskirts of Tel Aviv. I mean, it's, you know, it's just uh, ridiculous. And, uh, you know, I, I, perhaps I, I, I could send you in a different uh, 
the frameworks for photographs that you can see from, from, from the area designated to Palestinian state, you can see Israel's only international airport, it's, it's seaports, military bases, naval bases, uh, major infrastructure uh, systems and, and uh, installations, whether it's power stations or whether it's water uh, conveyance. All these will be in range of weapons being used against Israel today from territory that was abandoned uh, by Israel and transferred to, to Arab administration. So this is not sort of right-wing scaremongering. This is just pointing to the empirical precedent. And so I, I think Biden's uh, approach to the, uh, to the uh, Palestinian problem will just bring about another bloodbath. Uh, and the same can be said to, to his lenient policy towards, uh, towards uh, Iran. Uh, there's going to be no long-term solution to the policy uh, to, to, to Iran uh, in some sort of consensual agreement. There's only going to be a coercive, coercive solution to that. And the question is whether it will be, whether it will be kinetic or, or not. What, what I mean by that, whether you can impose uh, sanctions that are sufficiently uh, detrimental to Iran that will eventually bring about a, a, a regime change, or uh, you'll have to use military might. Uh, you know, I, I just don't see that the that the uh, the mullahs there, this, uh, this tyrannical theocracy, are one day going to slap their foreheads and say, "Gee, why didn't we realize we were on our own track?" And we're going to give up our nuclear weapons. I don't think that's going to that's going to happen. They're not going to give them up voluntarily. They're only going to give them up uh, if uh, if uh, they're forced to. And you can see what's happening now in Ukraine. Ukraine was a country that gave up its nuclear weapons, and uh, so it could be invaded with with uh, relative impunity. I, I don't think that Putin would have dared to done that uh, to have done that. If uh, the Ukraine had maintained its uh, its uh, nuclear arsenal, what do you think about uh, Israel offering to serve as a go-between with Russia as uh, U.S. and Europe reinforce Ukraine's resistance against Putin's unprecedented assault? Well, to put it bluntly, I think it's a very smart public relations move by Bennett. Whether it will have any substantive outcome, I'm a little skeptical, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I don't. I don't think that Bennett is going to pull out any, any, any uh, brilliant argument why why uh, Putin would, would stop. I, I think uh, again with Putin, uh, you know, and, and this, the pain, the, the pain is, is is greater than the gain. He'll he'll carry on. I mean, he's proved to do. He proved what how, how ruthless he could be in Syria. He proved how ruthless he could be in uh, in, in Chechnya. So uh, there didn't cause this uh, huge uh, outcries as the Ukrainian case has. But, um, you know, Putin basically has, has uh, adopted the scorchers policies wherever he's been, and uh, he hasn't had the same pressure as on him now. Uh, I, you know, I, th I think what's likely to, to change Putin's mind more than Bennett or Erdogan in Turkey is uh, because he's also taken up an intermediary role. Uh, I think what would change his mind is uh, pre pressure from inside Russia, either by revolt by the younger generation or uh, 
some action by the, the oligarchs who are close to him, or by the army itself who realizing the futility and the cost of what he's doing. Uh, because, you know, I don't even know what his end game is. Uh, because let's, let's suppose eventually he manages to subdue the initial resistance of the Ukraine. Uh, the, the Russians couldn't hold Afghanistan while they're going to hold they're going to hold Ukraine. I, mean, you know, I, I don't know what, what he thinks he can do. Um, so uh, in, in many ways, this is a very uh, baffling move by himself because you know, <laughs> there, there was one to stage, even talk about Russia joining, you know, it was just initial talks about Russia joining NATO. So uh, I, I remember I, I used to have some very high level contacts in, uh, in um, uh, in Russia, and when Putin w was present towards the end of his first presidency, uh, there was a problem, you know, what he was going to do. Uh, the, the, they didn't, no one really envisioned that he would become prime minister and Medvedev would be president and then they would swap again. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> then there was, a, uh, there was talk there of trying to bring uh, uh, Russia into NATO. Of course, nothing ever came of it. But uh, yeah, and then Russia was in a much weakened position compared to it is now. Russia was very, very, very poor position back then. It's only basically begun to uh, grow in power now because of the oil, not because of anything else, but uh, oil and the gas. Thank you. We're out of time. I wish we could go longer. Uh, this was wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Sherman, for your time. Uh, this was incredibly informative, all the way okay. from Israel. <laughs> uh, thank you to Vin News, and as always, thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Sebrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.